unicorns become zombicorns and Covid and geopolitics has changed the world. It's definitely time to re-skill leadership. You are listening to Brain Food with Lydia. When was that? A few years ago, I guess, That's right? It was um, actually five years ago. Five years ago. Oh, wow. And wow. we look the same, don't we? <laughs> I don't think we've changed that much. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Peter Hinson, and welcome back to Jantilskott Melidia. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I'm very, very happy to be back. Do you know actually what Jantilskott means? You, you, you're, you're very nice and you're no, always... No, I don't. I don't. What does it mean? Brain food. Brain food. Okay, mm-hmm. good. That's nice. Uh, uh, with me and the guest. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter, um, uh, before we start, uh, we have actually met before. Yes, we did. Yeah. And uh, the listeners can listen to a podcast that we did five years ago. If you scroll a bit, you can you can find it. Uh, and uh, on that day, the theme was uh, the day after tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now we are actually on the day after tomorrow. <laughs> was it how did it became how you planned? Huh, I, I have to say that um, you never know how it's going to play out. You never know what it's going to be. But I wanted to, you know, when I wrote the book The Day After Tomorrow, I wanted to urge people to spend time to be open-minded, to understand, to see what was happening, because I was predicting a world where we'd see a lot of change. And I think that really has panned out. And uh, I mean, if I just look at myself, the last nine months have been the most spectacular in my career. Because I've been in technology now for three decades, but honestly, because of AI and what happened in the last nine months, we've seen an explosion of opportunities and challenges. And in that sense, I think the day after tomorrow really has come true. But I also realize that we're never in the day after tomorrow. There's always the necessity to keep looking at the future in ways that are maybe even more intense than when we talked five years ago. How can we handle this uh, so we get inspired and not stressed about it? So, I, I mean, what I talk about today is, is I call it the never normal. And, and you might remember um, the first book I've ever written, which is now more than whew, 12 years ago, was called The New Normal. And I feel terrible about that book because uh, it was a fun and, and, and sexy title 12 years ago, and now I can't stand it anymore because it's been hijacked by the pandemic and everything is new normal now. And um, in that book, I wanted to describe what happens when technology stops being special and becomes normal in our lives. And of course, that's what happened. But I, I talked today about what I call the never normal, and that's a world of constant change. And that's not just technological, that's social, that's geopolitical, that's environmental, that's biological. And we seem to be getting into a world which is just escalating in terms of speed, and it's just accelerating faster than ever before. And you raise a really good question, is that, is there a limit to, as human beings, how we can cope with that? 
And is this never normal actually a bad thing because it creates more stress with a lot of people? And I think it's really a, a double-sided coin. I mean, uh, yes, on the one hand, you can probably be completely confused by this and think, my God, I won't be able to cope. I won't be able to adjust or move fast enough. But I think the main message that I'm trying to get out there is that we have to see that as a set of opportunities. Mm. Instead of just seeing it as Ooh, mountains to climb and challenges, can we take this as you know, an environment where there is an enormous amount of opportunities right in front of us? And people who can understand that and leverage that and take advantage of that can really use the never normal to their advantage. Mm. But I also believe that you know, we're not going to do this just automatically. We probably have to understand how to do that. We might have to be trained to do that. We might have to be educated. Because I don't think anyone on this world comes onto the world thinking, yes, the never normal, that's my thing. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I think this is something where we probably, as society and even as individuals and leaders, we really have to learn how to do this. Would you take it so far, uh, considering that hundreds of speeches uh, dies every day and the technology takes over. Is this some kind of evolution that we are seeing? We can get deeply philosophical into this, <laughs> but I'm, I'm an absolute optimist in the sense that I really believe that technology is there to help us lead better lives. That's what I fundamentally believe. And in that sense, I'm a technology optimist. There are plenty of people who think differently, who think that this is actually a bad journey that we're on, that we've become enslaved to technology, that we've become addicted to technology, that it's a world that you know we have no more privacy, we're being controlled and manipulated more and more. There's elements of that, but I try to see the upside. I try to see where innovation and, and especially technology can really lead us into a world that is going to be a better world. That's what I fundamentally believe. But there is also even a bigger question, and the bigger question is, I mean, is the state that we have as humans now, is that the end state? I mean, is what we have as biological mechanisms really the, the end point of you know, evolution? Or is there an opportunity to advance and to move beyond that? And I, I do believe that there is an opportunity. Um, I, I probably am realistic that I'm not going to see, you know, all of that in my lifetime. I mean, I might see the beginning of that, but I do believe that we might actually see a world where we are augmented as humans by technology, and that's going to be hopefully a better place. Mm. So let's say that that technology uh, develops us, and I, I I totally agree. But shouldn't we also program ourselves with a sort of resilience? Because I mean, uh, the electricity can pop, and we are very will be very analog uh, in one second, and then suddenly a book will be worth uh, millions because you can't Google it up and etc. So I'm 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 asking about resilience here. So the, it is uh, undeniable that the more um, advanced we are as a society using technology, the more dependent we become on technology. And building in a certain amount of resilience is necessary, but I don't believe that resilience is, is really necessary in the form that we're going to have to learn how to live without it. Uh, I, I believe it's maybe more important to put resilience into the fact that 
we still want to be in the driver's seat. I, I think that's a more important type of resilience. There are plenty of people out there who are actually thinking, what if we wouldn't have electricity anymore? How could we still survive? And I love reading those books. I mean, it's really like, it's like you know, going out in the wilderness and still being able to survive and, and knowing what fruits to eat and what mushrooms to you know, eat and not eat. But I think that's, that's very much a doomsday scenario. And I, I think we're probably in a situation where we can build on top of you know, these things. And even you know, Newton said we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And, and every time there is a scientific advance, you take for granted what the previous generation and you build on top of that. And we do the same in society and we become more dependent. That is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. But I think if we talk about resilience, I believe that there is a lot of attention that we have to do to make sure that we are still very much the ones that are in control. And that is probably something that has escalated over the last couple of months even, yeah, not just years, but months, with the enormous advantages and, and advances we've seen in, in artificial intelligence, that this is something that is not just for the science fiction books anymore. This becomes really core and I think very, very tangible, very real. It's always very comfort um, comfortable to discuss with optimistic people <laughs> like you. But we have to mention uh, that uh, even if we develop ourselves and, and our, our society with uh, uh, all the technology that is in the world, it's also about a uh, situation of power. Mm. And, and uh, I don't know if you feel the same optimism there, because um, at the end of the day, the one who has power owns the whole shebang. Uh, comments? That's true. And, and I think, um, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist. Um, and I, I do believe that we, we can actually really use that to our advantage. I'll give you a very practical example. My, my father-in-law has Parkinson's. And we recently had to take away his car keys. And that was a really tough moment because that means that this man who has always enjoyed freedom since he was 18 years old, where he could take a car and drive wherever he wanted, was suddenly gone. And, you know, I've been a huge fan of things like autonomous vehicles and self-driving cars. And unfortunately, it's not there yet. It's almost there, but it's not there yet. So I cannot give my father-in-law a self-driving car, which would give him the same freedom. At the same time, there is such an insane effort in building driverless cars. It costs so much money. There is now really only about three or four companies in the world who can do that. You have Google with their Waymo, you have Microsoft with Cruise, but really the amount of money it takes to develop this means that we're probably going to have a concentration. Even some of the really big car companies like Mercedes have basically said, that's oh, too difficult, we're giving up. Huh? So what we have is a concentration of power. So am I going to be really glad when I have Parkinson's in the future and I can use a self-driver car? Yes, absolutely. Am I going to feel sorry that it's only two companies in the world that have complete you know, control of this? Yeah, probably. But maybe that's something that we have to take into the mix. And one of the strange things that we now see in society is that more and more with innovation happening so quickly, with you know, technological progress, which costs a lot of money, that you, know, you seem to have a situation where it's almost like a winner takes all or a winner takes most. 
look at Google with you know 90% plus you know market share in search. I mean, I don't even know who number two is. Nobody cares who number two is. And that's a concentration that we have to be mindful of. The biggest worry that I have is that we have a concentration, not just in companies, but in geographies. And, and when I'm, I'm, I live in Belgium, I'm European, I grew up in Europe. Um, I've seen four big changes in my career. First was the World Wide Web with a lot of you know, European ideas. Eventually, all the big companies like Amazon and Google are US companies. Number two was mobile phones. I grew up with Alcatel and Ericsson and Sony and Nokia. And now two companies in the world, you know, basically Google and Apple control 99% of the world's mobile phones. And they are 17 miles from each other in Silicon Valley. Number three, the cloud, a complete race between two American companies, Amazon and Microsoft. And now we have AI. And again, I mean, there is no European player in sight. So the concentration is real, but the biggest worry I have is our geographic concentration, the fact that in Europe, we seem to be very, very limited at really putting our scale into the play. How did we end up like that? Huh. Well, <laughs> I think you could write a whole book on that. Yeah? But I, I don't want to write that book because it, it would be a really depressing book. But for me, the number one reason is that we have... Um, a European landscape that is still extremely fragmented. And we have never been able to leverage our you know, economy of scale. And, and you know, it's really nice. I can go to Spain and I, I don't have to pay for roaming in my telecom, which we had 10 years ago. Good. Huh? But if you see scaling up of opportunities and technologies, in the US, you have one country, you know, with 350 million people. In China, you have one country with 1.3 billion people. India, the same thing. But in Europe, we don't have you know, the power of 300, consumer, 300 million consumers. We have all these little countries who have all these little rules and regulations, and everybody's trying to optimize for their own local good. And it's really the fragmentation that is the the crux of Europe, and I think the number one reason why we failed. I mean, I, I, I do 95%, 97% of my work with, with companies, with corporates, and help them how to think about the never know, and I love that. Sometimes I'm tempted to do something for governments, and either that's a local government, and it's always disappointing to see how little influence they have, or it's the European government, and then it's even more depressing to see that it just doesn't work. Shouldn't scare you. It should inspire you and maybe fix that. Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 you're right. But what I've often seen with, with a lot of people who've tried to go from a, uh, a corporate environment to a political environment is the level of disappointment that they have when they see how slow moving it is and how difficult it is to get something done. And you know you have to optimize your time and 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 get a return on happiness and 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 for me, unfortunately, uh, that's the corporate world because I, I can see that they're actually doing stuff. They're actually you know implementing things and and moving forward. Mm. Uh, the other day I attended an, an event with a lot of uh, startups uh, and and the theme was where should we invest etc. And one of the speakers was actually the former prime minister of Finland, uh, Miss Sara Marin, Sanna Marin. Uh, and uh, uh, on a direct question, 
what should we invest in? What do we need to prioritize? Her answer was, without doubt, uh, arms. And if you said that in an, in, in, in an investment environment uh, two years ago, you would be dead. I mean, mm. you shouldn't deal with arms. Now we have, um, I'm not saying that she's right, but it's interesting that, that and the Finnish people ha has always been very black or white. They say what they think <laughs> all the time. Uh, but it is also very interesting, before anything else, we should sort of uh, make it clear who has the power in, in Europe. And if we don't make that clear, clear, nothing will be good. So, so talking about optimism and, and reality, um, what are your thoughts on that when it comes to investments? You, you, you're talking about unicorns and etc. And, and, and where should we head? Well, it's um, yeah. There's a couple of elements to your question. I think the the first is that from, and I understand her her response. I mean. We're in a, in a geopolitical situation that is more unstable than anything in the last 70 years. And, and I, I think it would be very foolish to think that this is magically going to solve itself. And, yeah, I mean, when I just look at it, and I don't think it's just a war in Ukraine. I think it's fault lines in the world economy. I spent a lot of time in the U.S., and you can clearly see the U.S. is paranoid about the rise of you know, China in particular. And uh, you almost see that, you know, it's extremely difficult for them where they had almost complete dominance for 60, 70 years as the most innovative country in the world. And all of a sudden you see that China is rising and developing and leapfrogging. Uh, five weeks ago, the number one downloaded app in the U.S. was Timu. Uh, and Timu is basically a Chinese uh, e-commerce giant. It's the westernized version of Pinduoduo, which is huge in China. And it was more popular than Walmart, more popular than Amazon. And it was Americans who bought a lot of really cheap Chinese products on Timu. Actually, the foremost downloaded apps in the U.S. five weeks ago were Timu, Shein, Fashion, TikTok, yeah, and CapCut. All four of them were Chinese. And all of a sudden, you see that the U.S. is now seeing this as a threat to national security. And I think we live in a situation where technological innovation and national security are actually completely intertwined now. And I think in Europe, we're in a very special situation, right? Because we, we're in between. We don't have our own technological powerhouses. So we're very dependent on you know, the US powerhouses when it comes to technology, say the Googles or the Microsofts of this world. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have a relationship with the rest of the world that we've always cherished. We, we want it to be neutral. I mean, Europe wanted to be Switzerland, but then bigger, right? But look at something like Volvo. I mean, Volvo is owned by a Chinese company. And I would argue that you know, over the last decade, Volvo has gotten stronger. It's gotten better. Uh, the brand has you know, increased in, and not decreased. The innovations have continued and not slowed down. So in Europe, we're going to have to find a new balance. And I think we're not doing that fast enough. We're still too dependent on the US. And I think we have to you know, build our own voice and our own narrative. And unfortunately, in that world, it also means that we're going to have to defend ourselves. 
There is a very, and th that's the second part of, of the question, there is always a very clear link between national security and innovation. I mean, look at the Cold War, the arms race, where the U.S. won the Cold War, but as a result of that, you know, it's not just the fact that they went to the moon. To go to the moon, they had to the, invent the, the microprocessor, the chip, and that created a huge opportunity for the U.S. to become the dominant player in everything that was digital. So there is always a link between war and innovation. So in a sense, I think that's the second dimension of her answer. I think it's not just you know making shells or cannons, but it's focusing that we continue to double down on technological innovation to defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then the other element, of course, is that when you look at the investment landscape now, it's quite different than what it was just a few, well, two years ago. And the reason is that the entire economic climate has changed as a result of COVID and then geopolitics. Now, we, we don't have zero interest rates anymore. All of a sudden, we get into a situation where you know, the venture capital industry, which has really you know, catapulted because of zero interest rates, that doesn't exist anymore. And you know, when you had a unicorn you know, a year ago or two years ago, you probably don't have a unicorn anymore. There's a lot of zombie corns out there. There's a lot of companies that we invested in at a much higher valuation than they were worth. And with the current economic and, and interest rate policy, they're not there anymore. And this is where we're gonna have to show resilience as well, because in the US, you have a lot of venture capitalists with deep pockets who can ride this out. But in Europe, we have such a fragile venture capital industry and understanding where to invest is a lot more difficult than it was, say, 18 months ago. Mm. Would you say that the zombie corn uh, list is longer than the other list? So officially, there's 1,200 unicorns in the world, officially. And I think uh, the majority of them have collapsed below that. And there's only a fraction of them which have actually thrived and gotten stronger. So I think, yes, there's, there's more zombie corns than unicorns at this moment. When you meet companies or uh, company leaders, um, what is the most common question? Because I, I, I imagine when they meet you, they sort of think you are a, or a, someone who can see in the future also a little bit, and, and, and you maybe can give them good advices. But, but what, do they, uh, what, are the mo what is the most frequent question? I, I, I cannot see in the future, but I, I do believe I can give good advice. <laughs> I think that's a, a distinction. Well, it's, it's, it's actually two elements to that. One is I'm often disappointed um, when I have a chance to work with companies and that they don't actually do something about it. And uh, I, I, I mean, I've had this a lot. I mean, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, you, you get invited to these wonderful, typically a company has an offsite once a year where they talk about the future. I don't know why, but it's typically in the summer because probably, you know, it's, you know, it's not less hectic. Huh? And then two days in the summer, they take their management team, their board of directors, usually to a wonderful place, an amazing resort, fantastic food, you know. And then they invite people like me. And yeah, they, they, they want to think about the future. And that's really great. And then the most depressing part is years later, they would ask me back. And I say, hey, that's cool. I, I don't go back. It's a different resort. Again, wonderful food, you know. 
and I want to see what they've done. And then I'm often disappointed. And I said, but why didn't you do anything? I mean, why did you ask me back? And they said, oh, it was so nice to listen to you last time. It was like going to a zombie movie in the cinema, but then you go home and you think, that could never happen to us. <laughs> and there's, there's a certain disappointment there. On the other hand, when I think about what I'm trying to do is to try to convince companies to take that never normal as a reality and that you need to spend more time, you know, going back to that day after tomorrow to understand what is out there, that you have to carve out the discipline to understand and you know find ways to act on that but it's really difficult because there is so much day-to-day stuff that consumes all of our energy and carving out that day after tomorrow is a really really difficult process but i think it's gotten even more intense now because in this never normal we all feel that we feel that the world is changing we feel that making an annual budget makes less and less sense because by the time you have your budget i mean two weeks later god something could have happened and you think i mean throw it in the garbage can and i think what it means and this is what i see as you know when the question i get the most is how can we cope as a company and become more agile in a world that seems to be just going faster and how do we do that without driving our people crazy and i think this is a balance and I think this is where we need to reskill and reskill ourselves, reskill ourselves as leaders. I mean, I've been teaching at London Business School for ooh, 12 years now. And that's a really wonderful place where you meet a lot of very senior leaders from all around the world. But the number one thing is not you know, the practical skills, but really about the mental skills to deal with that volatility, to be open-minded for change and to get out of a comfort zone. And I think it's gonna escalate. I mean, I just take AI as one example. I mean, that has just completely changed the game in less than a year's time. And there's a lot of people now that are working in companies that are you know, uh, mid-career, mid-age, that are thinking, my God, yeah, I'm gonna have to learn new stuff that you know, maybe an 18-year-old thinks is the normal, but I'm going to have to spend a lot of time to understand this. And I think that kind of shows the complexity inside organizations. Mm. The biggest, biggest problem today is, I think, the mental resilience and the mental agility to be open-minded for all these changes. It sounds almost like a generation gap here. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm 54, so I, I, I hate you know ageism, you know, <laughs> um, but. But still, there is experience and there is maybe also prejudice when it comes to age uh, in companies. So we're a lot of, lot of things to deal with. Yeah, but I think it's more about do you still have the, the energy you know, to actually engage and think about this as an opportunity instead of a challenge? And it's going to happen in so many markets. I mean, the number one um, you know, engagement this year for me has been uh, law firms. And I, I would do, I don't know, two or three law firms a year where I would do a presentation. Now it's the number one. And the reason, of course, is AI. I mean, you have tools now which are the practical implementation of large language models like ChatGPT, but for law firms. One of the most famous tools is Harvey. That's amazing. You take all your legal documents of a law firm, shove it into Harvey, and when a customer asks a question, you just type it in, 
and it takes all your intellectual property and boof, gives out a full legal argument in seconds. And of course, if you're a senior partner at a law firm and for a long time you've charged a lot of money for copy and paste, you, all, you suddenly realize the world is changing overnight. Huh? And I think this is where I see is that, you know, coming back to the age, some of the senior partners at these law firms think, oh my God, how, how many years until I retire? You know, can I ride out the old wave? <laughs> but then you see young people who are eager to say, hey, take this as an opportunity. We could completely change our law firm. We could think about a completely different price dynamics. We can think about different ways to engage people. We're gonna have a different composition and, and, and a f the firm is going to change. And I think this is, you know, maybe related to age, but more with energy. Do you still have the energy to actually think in a completely different way? That was a very good point to remember the energy question here. Um, energy in, 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 in real life, not only the mental energy, is also something that is a real challenge. Yep. And I'm always, I, I hear my voice myself here, I always tend to to uh, uh, come close to the war situation all over the world, conflicts, etc. Uh, and you are such an optimist, so you always turn the answers to something else. But energy is something that we really would fight for. How can we prepare ourselves for the things that that could cause? Uh, I, I, yeah, again, uh, my optimism always shines through. I think, um, but a sense of realism is important. Maybe one of the most interesting um, books that I've read last year was Schmiel's book, um, How the World Really Works. And he's, he's like the house scientist of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I had done some work for the foundation. And through the foundation, I, I got in contact with Schmiel and, and his work. And he's a scientist. I mean, he's written 50 books, you know. And he says, we have to be careful because when it comes to energy, this is a big one. And we cannot magically hope that what we've seen in terms of mobile phones or artificial intelligence that we just go from you know, zero to one in record time, this is not gonna happen with energy. And he says, there's four elements in the world, which is ammoniac, uh, which is steel, which is plastic, um, and then uh, basically says these are elements that consume an enormous amount of energy. And we cannot just magically turn that into you know, a renewable world. If you look at cement, for example, I mean, I was one of the one of the data points that stuck in my head in the book was in 2018 and 2019, in China alone, they produced more cement than the entire United States in the 20th century. So we see an escalation of our dependency on energy. And, and again, in Europe, we're in a very special situation because we are you know, trying to be holier than the Pope. And, and with good reason, we have to do something. European Commission is hammering down on you know, everything that is environmental and, and broader than that. I mean, the SDGs are top of mind. But it's also something that is not going to happen magically. 
And managing the timing of that is absolutely vital. So, you know, there I sometimes feel that maybe I should spend more time with politicians mm -hmm. because sometimes mm -hmm. politicians and scientists just don't get along and they make decisions that are not really based on science. And mm -hmm. I think if there's one thing we have to do is double down on science. And your commentary is really connected to my actually last question. And it is it, it's very interesting to, to think five years ahead. We met five years before. <laughs> what do you think you will talk about five years ahead? Well, I think um, my, my kids are getting older. So we have a 23-year-old who just finished her first degree at university. We have a 19-year-old who's just starting out. And what I find fascinating more than anything is how that next generation looks at the world. And it's really interesting because our, you know, our daughter has just finished university without artificial intelligence. Our son is starting university where this is now already at that generation, the normal to use AI. Yeah? But I really hope that what we can talk about in five years time is that we see that our educational foundation has changed. Because if we don't correct that, I mean, in many countries, the education system is still the slowest moving part of society. And if we're not going to correct that, we're going to create an enormous amount of tension because that has repercussions in mental health. It has repercussions in jobs, in you know, engagement, in happiness. And I think this is where we have to get it right. And this is where maybe my ray of hope is that we have such an extremely rich culture of education in Europe that we might see this as an opportunity to really, really tailor to that next generation. So I hope we can talk about education in five years' time. See you then. Thank you Thank very you. much. <laughs> Thank you. Peter Hinson. My pleasure.